We're back. We mentioned a couple months back on the program the passing of a real American character, uh, film director and producer Russ Meyer. Uh, While sitting in on the Insight program last October, I crossed paths with Mike Carroll, who is a KCRA-TV cameraman. It so happens that Mike was good friends with Russ Meyer and, uh, and agreed to come on the show in the future and tell us a little bit about this very interesting fellow. Although everyone recognizes that Russ Meyer was a bit of a character, the word auteur is, uh, is applied to him, uh, which is usually reserved for film directors such as Fellini, people uh, in the film industry, particularly directors who are um, especially innovative. By all accounts, that definition fit Mr. Russ Meyer. Mike Carroll, welcome to Radio Parallax. Hey, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, uh, you, you knew Russ for, for many years. Since the 1980s. You just, you just chanced upon him? I mean, he, how did that happen? It happened at a film festival. This is when um, communities, small places, saw the market in having a local film festival and attracting big names. And I heard about this one little place in Colorado called Telluride that had a film festival. Well, I grew up as a kid hearing about Russ Meyer. Right. When I was in my early 20s was the first time I saw a Russ Meyer movie, and that was just a month before this film festival. It was his last film. It's called Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixen. Yes. Uh, an elaborate title for an elaborate film. And I went to see this expecting some sleazy, tawdry, cheap movie and was just blown away by the quality of it. I mean, yes, there was naked people in there and extraordinary <laughs> naked women, but the way it was shot, the yeah. way it was edited, the color and the lighting was far surpassed most serious films I'd seen. And then the, the single credit on it that said, not just directed by Russ Meyer, but written, produced, directed, photographed, and edited by Russ Meyer. He did everything. Um, that blew me away. So anyway, I'd seen that a month before. I go to this little tiny film festival, and when I got there, there was a flyer with all the lists of attendee of people being honored. Robert Altman, uh, Jean-Luc Godard, who introduced the French New Wave, Russ Meyer. Mm-hmm. And on the very first day of the film festival is a welcoming party. And there are only a few hundred people that went to attend. So he was there. And eventually I got to work up and meet him. And I told him I'd just seen my, my first Russ Meyer film. He just started talking to me. And mm-hmm. throughout the festival, I would go to see films and I would bump into Russ and uh, go in the other way. And he'd nod, say hello, and put out his hand. And he'd say, hey, how are you? And he called me Gatsby because... The Great Gatsby was big at the time, and I had bought this weird kind of hat that was Kruger that was popular in the in the twenties. And he called me Gatsby. He didn't know my name, so uh, he would say, "Gats, how are you doing?" And um, I would run into him, and I would talk to him, and I pay attention to his films. And um, I don't think other people paid respect to him. On the last day of this film festival, I ran into him uh, in a bookstore, and I said. You know, would you mind if I could write to you? And he said, yes, yes, I'd be disappointed if you didn't. And he gave me a card. Mm -hmm. I took it, and I I was telling people, I met Russ Meyer. I I met Russ Meyer, and then about a month later, I'm thinking, you know, am I kidding myself? What what am I thinking about? You know, is he going to know me? So I, around one evening, I dialed up, got his card, and I dialed the phone. It answered, and it was Russ. Russ answered his own phone himself. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, yes, RM here. And I said, uh... Mr. Meyer, uh, this is Mike Carroll. And he said very in his gruff voice, and who the hell is Mike Carroll? <laughs> and I blithered. I thought, oh, my God, I, I, I'm an idiot. <laughs> I, I said, uh, I met you in Telluride. You called me Gatsby. 
then he suddenly said, Gatsby, Mike, where have you been? I've been wondering why haven't you called me sooner? <laughs> well, I, I, I want to say, Mike, after your recommendation, I did purchase uh, uh, a couple days ago Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens, and, and I agree. It, it, is, it is technically, it's very well done. And, and he, he did all these on such a low budget. His budget was his wallet. <laughs> he made the. He didn't just produce them. He financed them. Right. And um, that film was made for a quarter of a million dollars back then. And everything about it was his his own, even down to the sound effects. As a professional photographer, did you learn a few things from from Russ? I did. I did. The interesting thing is that I, when I saw um, his films and went to the film festival, I was working as an editor in a TV station in St. Louis and. Then a few years later, I became a cameraman, and one of the first things they did was sent me off to this school where they taught us how to shoot in a certain style with static shots, long shot, medium shot, close up, the basics. We were, we were taught this method, and they were, it was taught by guys who'd largely learned it in the Army. And that's where Russ learned it, yeah. in the Army. And they taught the same sort of precepts. And then years later, when I was a chief cameraman and I was teaching new photographers how to shoot, I actually... I actually ran clips from beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens <laughs> to show them sequencing. Here's a long shot that establishes. Then you cut to the close-up, then other close-ups, and then other things that, that create a sequence. And I'll say that running clips from Russ Meyer always held attention. I can only imagine, and try, I'm trying to envision having just seen it today, what sequence you might have done for that. It's hard to imagine. Well, it's one of the few classroom lessons that everybody asked to borrow afterwards. <laughs> Well, let's review a little bit for people that don't know m much about this guy. He was born in San Leandro in 1922 at the age of 12. His mother bought him an 8mm camera. He placed second in a national filmmaking competition and uh, enlisted in the, the Army, where he was, as you mentioned, he was taught to, 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 uh, how, to how to shoot film. Apparently, according to the, the, the obits I have in front of me, some of his coverage of General, General Patton was later used in the 1969 screen biography Patton, Lust for Glory, mm -hmm. and um, he apparently heard of the story when he was posted in England about 12 GIs convicted of capital offenses who'd been promised pardons. His following up on that story was what led to the movie, the, the Robert Alt Aldrich uh, film, The Dirty Dozen. Yeah. It said in France, his commanding officer was Ernest Hemingway, who escorted the young cameraman to a brothel outside of Paris where he lost his virginity. Well, that is true, and how that worked is that the French army... Man, uh, that was overseen by de Gaulle and led by Leclerc was given permission by Patton to go in and liberate the city themselves. So the French liberated it, but there were two jeeps of Americans that went in, and Russ was on one of the two jeeps. They, were, they covered it and shot the footage, and in Russ's jeep was Ernest Hemingway, who was covering the war. So they got into Paris, and they're the only Americans in Paris during the liberation. Russ told me that uh, Papa Hemingway took them around to his favorite bars, favorite restaurants, and of course, everything was gratis. Mm -hmm. And Papa took his uh, GIs to a brothel and um, said, whatever you want. And that was Russ's first experience. Well, he, uh, he, he goes to work as a photographer and, and, and sort of winds up on, uh, on, on Hugh Hefner's team. I was, I was startled to find out that he did the first centerfold for Playboy in 1955, and the model just happened to be his wife, Eve yeah. Meyer, who's Playboy's Miss June 1955. She was in 
Playboy more than once, which was would not happen now, but was right. rather common back then. Yeah. If you look at his pictures, because I've I, I got the 50, first 50 years of Playboy, yeah. his pictures stand out, and there's a cinematic edge to it, and there's a, you can see that dry, Russ Meyer sense of humor. Like, if, if you look at his, his pictures in uh-huh. Playboy, there's usually two martini glasses in the background, <laughs> which suggests that there's a, someone else in the room with the woman. Uh-huh. So he was always pro- trying to subject, give a, uh, uh, some subtle suggestions even then. Well, I understand that two of his films are in the Museum of Modern Art. The one that really puts, really makes Russ Meyer a historical figure in American cinema happens in 1959. He takes $24,000, probably, as you say, of his own money, does a four-day shoot, uses one of his old army buddies, Bill Tease, puts together a film called The Immoral Mr. Tease about, I guess the guy has, like, X-ray specs, or he's able to see people without their clothes on. Well, it's what's going on in his mind. Okay. You know, like, it's... It's fantasization, which okay. is what we all have. You know, we we see an attractive woman, and we're kind of we we have some mental fantasy of some sort or another okay. about them. And for him, he sees women, and his mind just clicks to what they would look like without clothes on. Right. And it's just frivolity. It's kind of like the at that time the only kind of films like this were they were called nature films, but they were basically nud- films from nudist colonies. Or National Geographic type, you know, women with their tops off. Yeah. Right, whereas Russ did this, and he did it, you know, for laughs right. in, in, an, in everyday settings, like going into an office, and all of the, you'll first you see the secretaries, and then you see Bill Tease, and he has this current goofy look on him, <laughs> and then you see the women. The interesting thing is that it's... it's more of an homage to Harold Lloyd or Buster Keaton because it was a silent movie. Mm-hmm. There's no dialogue. There's just this kind of goofy music behind it because he couldn't afford sound. <laughs> I and didn't he, know that. The other interesting thing is that film was very limited at that time, and it was all shot with Kodak reversal film, which is what you would shoot a home movie with. Mm-hmm. At that time, Kodak was the only place that would process it, and Kodak had a rule of never processing anything that had any nudity in it. How do you get around that? He knew the guy who processed oh. film at night, and he went in and brought a hooker. <laughs> and he paid for the film and gave the guy a bonus. Russ Myers sort of sort of made this acceptable for the masses. Well, that's, that's exactly the case. And it, it took t- almost 10 years after that to make himself legitimate, because he kept on, he made that film, as he said, for around $28,000 out of his own pocket, it made a million dollars back in a year. It's the same year that John Cassavetes made Shadows, which is considered the great American independent first film, but that film didn't make any money. Mm-hmm. Russ Meyer's film not only made a million dollars, but within a year there were a thousand copies of it. So he immediately was, had a name for himself. It was also made infamous because, do you know the name Charles Keating? Yes, I do. I was hoping we'd bring up Mr. Keating. Well, Charles Keating, now people know of him as the guy who, was, who went to jail, and maybe he's still there, I don't know. Right. but for Sold a lot of bad stock that people took their life savings. Right, over $100 million he built people out of, and the, the federal government had to bail out. Well, he was, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, um, he's a very strong... Christian conservative guy who was paving the anti-pornography fight, and he had the largest, most extensive uh, 
collection of pornography in America that he would make available to anti-pornography <laughs> attorneys. What a guy. And he was, ter- uh, he was going after Russ all the time in every state to try and keep Russ from running things, because back in that time in the country, there wasn't any kind of, uh, well, the First Amendment was always being challenged, but it was done by state by state, and, you know, sometimes even city by city had their own um, standards on what is public decency. And so Russ spent a lot of his time and a lot of his own money um, in the courts, paving the way for First Amendment rights that we now have. We're speaking with KCRA television photographer Mike Carroll about his friend and legendary film director-producer Russ Meyer. Keating's concept of morality was quite a bit different than, than Russ's. Well, Russ had, had, had a strong sense of, of decency and morality. Then with one successful, very successful film under his belt and plenty of cash, uh, Russ Meyer then goes on into independent filmmaking. In his next film, he casts his Playboy centerfold wife in the starring tit- role, titling it Eve and the Handyman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is just so, it's so Russ Meyer to have this sort of a tongue-in-cheek uh, title, and it was, I gather, a rather artsy-fartsy uh, send-up of, of films of the day that, that audiences just loved. Well, yeah, and again, it was a silent movie. There was no sound. It was a 16-millimeter film, and me- much of it is even almost played like a silent movie. For instance, there's one part where um, Jim Ryan, mm-hmm. who is his best friend and is still alive and was still with Russ to the end, He's walking along and he sees in one of these typical scenes that you would see at the time where you see someone with an easel and they're painting something out in, you know, like in a park or something, uh-huh. a nature scene. Well, he sees this guy and he has a paint roller for <laughs> rolling a paint. And it's, it's a white canvas. And then he rolls the, the, the paint roller up and all of this picture appears underneath. Uh-huh. Then he does it again and all this other picture appears magically out of his roller. Well, obviously, he'd shot this in reverse. Right. And, and rewound the film right. so that he was actually painting over the picture. But right. it, it's, a, it's one of these goofy kind of Buster Keatonish or Charlie Chaplinish type of moments in a movie. His other films after that, I, I gather, they, they refer to what's, uh, what's Meyer's gothic period. He produced movies like, and the, the titles just cracked me up, Lorna, Mud Honey, Motor Psycho, and the, and, the, and the classic Faster Pussycat, Kill, Kill. And these movies he would make by himself, you know, with a handful of his uh, his army buddies, and uh, for about fifty or sixty thousand, and they'd go out into a desert and they'd they'd shoot like crazy for a couple of weeks. And um, a lot of those films in the mid sixties dealt more with with violence. Yeah. And there would be hints of sexuality. Right, but not not violence like we think of today with blood spattering. It was... No, 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 nothing like that. More exaggerated. In fact, they might have. Two men fighting each other with chainsaws or with uh, <laughs> hurling sticks of dynamite at each other and whole hillsides exploding. Um, it was totally bizarre, you know, excessive, cartoonish violence. And, he, of course, somewhere along the line, he becomes pals with Roger Ebert, who we know from Ebert and Siskel. And, yeah. and I guess they got along famously. And, and Roger Ebert uh, helped him on... Well, he got. I guess. I guess Vixens was one of the big money makers in 1968 that caused 20th Century Fox to put him to work in one of his uh, on a couple of films he made for them. Well, Russ always said to me that um, that Vixen is what made everything for him. Mm-hmm. I mean, Immoral Mr. Teeth established him and gave him the base to work from, but he still was working in, in the low budget independent world and drive-in world, for the most part, over the next 10 years, and it gave him a great income. He lived extremely well, but then in the late 60s, or mid-60s, 
around 66, he made Vixen. That was the first American film released to have an X rating. And he was very proud of that. <laughs> there were, Warner Brothers had a different film that had got an X first, but they were so ashamed that they never released it. And they still haven't. But Russ would always say, yes, I made the first one that got out there. And that helped to make that film so much money. And, you know, that helped to blaze the trails, and it made so much money that then the big studios got into it, you know, like Myra Breckenridge and right. a few other things. And for, a, for about two years, the, big, the majors were making films that had an X rating. Midnight Cowboy right. had an X rating. Right. So he blazed those trails. And you look at those films now, and they're so tame. Yeah. So when he made Vixen, he made it for around um, $60,000. And he made it right up here. He made it, made it um, like 30 or 40 miles here from here in Sacramento, up in the mountains. It's supposed to be Canada, but he shot it right up here up in the Sierras. I'll be darned. He, he shot this with a young woman, um, Erica Gavin. At that time, a distributor split 50-50 with a filmmaker. But within about two or three months, their checks started coming back, but they, it wasn't for five or $10,000. Within three months, they were getting checks for $300,000. My God. And these checks came in once a month, every month, for around three years. Wow. And then Variety lists the 100 most popular films of the year, and there is Vixen right up in the top 10 because it's based on investment and return. And wow. this film had returned in two years $10 million, 50% of that going to Russ. Daryl Zanuck sees this, and he says, hey, if this guy can make this much money on a film that costs 60000 Imagine how much money we're going to make if we give him a million. So then the phone rings, and it's Daryl Zanuck saying, could you come into my office tomorrow? He had his choice of cameraman at the time, and he chose a guy named Fred Konekamp, who had been an Army cameraman. And Fred Konekamp, two years later, shot the movie Patton. Uh-huh. Russ had a great time with it because they'd both been in the Army. He loved World War II. Yeah. He told me many a time that... Um, you know, sleeping out somewhere alongside a tank in, uh, in the Army, and then 7 or 8 in the morning, he'd feel uh, this one guy hitting him really hard with a boot um, on his backside and turned around and it was George Patton. And Patton is saying, what are you men doing here sleeping? You know, you don't want to be in this war? And Russ said, oh, no, sir, we love the war. We never want it to end. And then Patton got very emotional and said, God, I love you men. <laughs> he told me that story over and over, and he really did genuinely love the war. You know, people at uh, Old Timers in Davis, uh, like myself, would remember back in the 1970s, the West Lane Triple X uh, drive-in that used to be on the outskirts of town. I think that would have been a place where uh, Russ, Russ's movies would have, been, uh, would have been shown. Well, I hope they were shown, and I hope a lot of people went to see them. I'd never seen one of his movies until about 10 years ago. We rented Vixen, and I, I must admit, we a friend of mine now had a few beers, and we, we howled. <laughs> and, I, and I got quite a few laughs out of Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens. It's just such... You you can there's a sense of humor that pervades the movie where he you can tell that Russ is you know playing a joke. And they were always, I mean, Vixen paved ways, and you can kind of see where he was breaking out at that point from from his smaller films. And then when you see Beyond the Valley of the Ultra Vixen, his last movie, you can see he had no constraints at all anymore. He didn't have to worry about any kind of censors, and he also had quite a bit more money, and he could do what he wanted to do without anyone, even Daryl Zanuck, telling him. And he really did love having fun with it. And that film is written by, I think, R. Hyde and someone else, which is Russ and Roger Ebert. Right. I mean, you knew him for a long time. Can you give us a couple of stories that really, uh, that really kind of summarize uh, the adventures of, of Russ Meyer for you? When I was at the service, 
Roger Ebert was there, and he was talking about how often he would go to L.A. and he'd be meeting with Russ. And one thing about Russ is that he loved food. Uh-huh. Every night he was at some restaurant, and all kinds of restaurants. But um, so many times um, Ebert said that he would be at a restaurant, and there would be Russ, and there would be Kit Natividad, one of his actors, and maybe Jim Ryan, his Army buddy, best friend, and maybe some kid that Russ had just met at a film school or who had come up to him on the street and said, I loved your films, and Russ invited him to dinner uh-huh. and to join him. And it was like that so often, and I think I was just like that kid. And He was the kind of guy that really cared about the people that he knew. If you didn't tell him that you were there, and he found out later that you were in L.A., he was very hurt. It sounds like he was a hell of a guy to know, and it was, we always admire a guy that does it his way and pulls it off. And made some money at it. Well, Mike Carroll, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and we appreciate you sharing some of your insights about a fascinating guy in American history. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure, and I uh, I hope that some people out there will go and rent some of his movies and discover it for themselves. Well, they're, they're, they're hilarious. <laughs> well, it's good that they live on. Russ always said, Russ Meyer is going to live to be 100. I hope his, he didn't make it to that, but I think his films will. All right. I've lived a life that's full I traveled each and every highway and more much more than this I did it my way I'm Douglas Everett this is Radio Parallax on KDVS 90.3 FM let's take a short break to mention I did what I had to do saw it through without exemption I planned each charted course each careful step along the byway and more Much more than this, I did it my...